One of the many, many things I love about Second is our practice in our public worship to go book by book, chapter by chapter, verse by verse through all the Bible so that we don't just pick and choose those parts of the Bible that we think are convenient, that we like in our particular circumstances and omit those parts of the Bible that really challenge us and convict us and you know, we just don't wanna look at those. So I'm really glad for that practice. But what is one to do if one is asked to preach on one particular Sunday when George just needs to be away for vacation with his family, which he deserves, as does Calvin, um, they're away. So how are you going to pick? You know, you're not going, you've got to choose out of all of the vast array of scripture, you've got to pick one. So I'm going, gosh, that's a great question. So I turn to one of the greatest English speaking preachers in the 20th century. John Stott, Anglican at All Souls Church in London, England. He also wrote one of the best books on preaching in the 20th century, Between Two Worlds, trying to bridge the gap between the ancient world of Scripture and our modern world where we live and die and, and wonder how we ought to please Christ. So Bridging Between Two Worlds is his book. And he says, if you're going to pick a text out of Scripture, you should consider at least these three factors. So, number one, you should think about external factors. What's going on in the nation around you or in the world? What about your state, your city? What's happening outside the church that, that might need comment uh, on a Sunday morning? Okay, well, if I think about that, I think we've got one stubborn global coronavirus that's out there and won't seem to go away, and it's got all these economic repercussions. That's significant. Um, we also have racial injustice and racial tension going on all around us right now. That, that needs to be talked about. And then we've got this very contentious political season that we're just starting now, and it promises to get worse, where even those first two things that I mentioned have become politicized. I mean, who, who's not for health? Everybody's for health. Well, not really. You do this, and you're pushing that political agenda. And if you do this, then you're doing that political agenda. And Who's not for justice? Well, yeah, we're all, but no, justice means this to this group and that to that group, and it's all just a, a mess. Okay, we better think about that. Now, you also need, according to John Stott, to consider pastoral factors. You're the shepherd of the sheep. You talk to people during the week. You listen to their concerns. You pray for them. You hear uh, them talk about each other as well as to each other. And you realize we, we have some issues in our congregation we need to think about, we need to address. There is way too much of apathy and inertia in too many of our congregation who, who don't take seriously their vows to support the worship and work of the church to the best of their ability. They, they drift more and more, and the pandemic can't help. Um, how, how do we address that? And then there are forces at work in our congregation that would try to divide us over changes that are coming into our service, and we're trying to adapt to the outside world in a way that will effectively communicate the gospel message to them. And some like the changes, some don't like the changes, then it becomes very um, divisive. That can't be good. We got to hold together. So that needs to be addressed. And then there are personal factors. You know, I'm realizing that the Lord is teaching me that I have a slight bias. I sort of drift. I lean one way in a reading of Scripture that is very individualistic and tended toward piety, religious practices that, uh, that I want to concentrate on. And in order to balance that, I, I need to learn more about um, ethical righteousness 
public righteousness, not just private piety. So how can that work in, Lord? Well, I prayed, thought about those different factors, and I believe the Lord led me to a text that is at least right for me, and I think it's good for you and for any who may be listening today, even if you're not a member of our church. It's from the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. It's found in Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 through 48. Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 through 48. Hear the word of the Lord. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray. Spirit of the living God, fall fresh on us and make us malleable in your hands to conform to your word and prevent us from trying to make your word conform to us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to take you back to June 22nd, 1981. It's the first round of Wimbledon. Remember Wimbledon? Gosh, it seems like... We're missing something. We should be watching that. Right now, earlier this month, we should be watching. But no, sorry, no Wimbledon this year. But in 1981, they had Wimbledon. And on June 22nd, in the first round, John McEnroe is serving to fellow American Tim Gullickson. It's early on in the match. It's not that controversial yet, it seems. And yet, it became very famous. One of the most memorable, if some people say it's the most memorable moment in Wimbledon history. And uh, McEnroe puts up a serve that in his mind, it seems to hit the chalk, and the chalk flies, and it's an ace. Gullickson doesn't even get a hand on it. And yet, the lines person says, uh, fault. And so, John McEnroe looks at the umpire in the chair, expecting an overturn, and no overturn is forthcoming. And so, John McEnroe just says, to him, what, what are you doing? I mean, you saw the chalk fly. You got to overturn that. You got to make that call. And he said, oh, no, Mr. McEnroe, no, it wasn't. It was, it was wide. It was on this side of the line. What? I'm sorry, what? And he's walking toward him all the time. He says, uh, no, Mr. McEnroe, it was out. Uh, the linesman made a perfectly fine call. You can't be serious in an uh, in intense but not a loud voice. And he says, you cannot be serious. And he, oh, I'm well, sorry. Uh, uh. Got a little carried away there. You got to watch that. Okay. 
He said, you cannot be serious. That ball was in. And he says it was out. And eventually in that game, the, the entire tournament referee gets called. Uh, uh, McEnroe loses two points for unsportsmanlike conduct. He's fined $1,500. And so it doesn't look like a good chance that he's going to join Bjorn Borg in the final again, as they had in the previous year when they had this epic five-set match and Borg wins 8-6 in the fifth. Forget McEnroe this year, except that he somehow pulls it together, rallies, and sure enough, wins his first Wimbledon in 1981. Why do I tell you that? Because if you've been paying attention, I know that's a big if, and if you are honest you could very well have been saying that same thing as I read Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 to 48. Jesus, you cannot be serious. Who can live like that? Who could possibly love in that way? Surely you're not serious. But this morning, I'm here to remind us all that, of course, Jesus is serious about Matthew 5, 38 to 48. And if we'll pay careful attention to this passage, we will learn two things. We will learn the way of love. What does it mean to love? Jesus is going to tell us. And then equally importantly, the way to love. How is this possible? We'll do it in seeing three parts to this passage. We'll learn first um, that we are to love at all times. Chapter 5, verses 38 through 42. Then we're going to learn that we are to love all the people, love all the time, love all the people, chapter 5 and verses 43 through 47. And then finally, we are going to learn that we need to love all the gospel, the whole gospel in verse 48. So let's launch in. Let's see what we can learn um, as we turn to loving all the time. I want to begin with three distinctions that we need to keep in mind in order rightly to understand this text before we can apply it. The first distinction is one between the disciples and the world. Disciples and the world. There is a big gap between them. And that's the way Jesus understood it to be and wanted it to be a widening gap, not in the sense of contact with one another, but in the sense of the lives that they lived. This is not ethical teaching for the whole world. Many people who are not believers are going to look at this uh, Sermon on the Mount and go, well, that's not very practical. Nobody can live like that. But in fact, we'll decide later, but I'm going to suggest, though it's very practical and it is the way that Jesus wants his, his people to live. It's established right from the beginning of the sermon when in chapter 5, verse 1, we read Matthew record that um, when Jesus saw the crowds, he saw the world coming to him, you know, wanting healing, wanting bread, wanting, he saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain to get away from the crowd, presumably. And when he had sat down, his disciples came to him and he opened his mouth and began to teach them, saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed, and he goes on to give the Beatitudes and he teaches all the way up until this point. Disciples, hear it. The world can listen in, but it's not for them. These are, this is for Christ followers. Second distinction is one between Old Testament revelation and rabbinic tradition or interpretation. The contrast that Jesus is going to draw in verse 21 of this chapter all the way to verse 48 is not a contrast between the Old Testament and the New Testament. 
It's a contrast between the Old Testament and the way the Old Testament was being interpreted in Jesus' day by rabbinic tradition and interpretation. That's the contrast. Jesus is not pitting the Old Testament against the New Testament in any of these verses in the Sermon on the Mount. He's already said in verse 17, do not think that I came to abolish the law and the prophets. I didn't come to abolish them. I came to fulfill them. I can I tell you the truth, heaven and earth won't pass away until the smallest letter and stroke of this entire law has been accomplished. So no, no tension between Old Testament and New Testament for Jesus, not at all. Third distinction is one between a judicial application of the principle enunciated in verse 38 and a personal application of the principle. Yes, the Old Testament does say an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth in a couple of different places, but in those contexts, this is instruction that's being given to judges in Israel as to how they are to make their judicial decisions. This is not instruction given for private individual Israelites to get revenge on those that have wronged them. Was never intended to be that, and Jesus is making it explicit here, it is not that. So understand, yes, there's a place for judicial decision and for lex talionis or the law of retribution, but it is not in personal interactions with people. It's in a judicial setting where evidence is given, witnesses are called, and all of that is decided, uh, not through personal vendetta. All right, with those distinctions in mind, then let's look to the four descriptions of possible loopholes for love that Jesus addresses here, because that's exactly what the scribes and the Pharisees wanted. That's what pretty much everybody wanted. We want a loophole. We, you, you cannot be serious that we're supposed to live this way. For example, first one, verse 39, you cannot be serious that when I get a personal insult, I can't strike back in kind. Jesus says, absolutely. When you get a personal insult, someone strikes you on your right cheek, then disciple of mine, I expect you to turn the other cheek also. Now you're wondering, why do you call that a personal insult? That seems like an all-out attack. But if you think about the logistics of it, if you're making, if you're right-handed, as most people are, only a few of us are blessed with being left-handed, but um, if, you're, if you're right-handed and you're coming into their opponent and you hit them on the cheek, which cheek are you hitting them on? You're hitting them on the left cheek. So in order for the right-handed person to get the right-handed person on the right cheek, it's got to be like a McEnroe backhand. It's got to come boom, like that, which is the action that is done for a personal insult. You know, and you can see fights get started all the time with that, like, and so you're slapped, and here's what you're to do. No one else is being threatened. There's no injustice going on here particularly. You have been personally wronged. Your honor may be at stake, but Jesus says you can sit on your honor. Just stifle it. I'm not asking you to be fearful. I'm not asking you to be a weakling. I'm asking you to show self-restraint for my sake to follow my law. If Alexander Hamilton had had a little bit more of this at this stage of his life, he might have lived as long as his wife Eliza did. But because his honor was threatened and he wasn't going to back down from Aaron Burr, you strike me on the right cheek, I'll strike you back. I mean, and then it ends up in a duel, even when his own son has already been killed in a duel. What on earth? Am I the only one that paid $6.99 or whatever for a month of Disney Plus in order to watch Hamilton on TV? I, I've asked a couple of people that this morning. They kind of like, no, we didn't do it. No, is that on? I didn't know it. Like, oh, well, I really liked it. It was awesome. But... Uh, Yep, personal insult, you turn the other cheek. Well, what about if I have a legal assault? Somebody comes after me trying to get my shirt. 
You give them the shirt off your back, says Jesus. If it's one-on-one, it's, if it's a, an individual and a personal, uh, you give them the shirt off your back. And you give them your coat also. What? You cannot be serious. Yes, disciple, says Jesus, I'm serious. There's way too much contention in this world. We need some people who will care less about their personal honor and who will, in amazing self-control, not respond in kind, not retaliate. Well, what about uh, someone stops me on my way, a forced halt. I have this forced halt all of a sudden, and this Roman soldier says, hey, you got to take this equipment a mile for me. Get in line. Come on. I say to you, take it the mile and then take it an extra mile. The one mile you didn't have any choice about, really. That person had more weaponry than you did and more backup than you did, and so you pretty much had to do it. But when you went that extra mile, you showed that you were doing this voluntarily, that you were in control here and that you were following your Father in heaven. Yep, when you go the extra mile. What about... When a person who's in default of all their financial situation, their loans, they come to me and they're looking for a loan or a handout. Surely I don't have to help in that case. No, give to the person who begs of you and don't turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Well, you cannot be serious. I think Jesus is serious about each one of these situations. And we are to have an open hand. We are to go the extra mile. We are to give the shirt off our back and we are to turn the other cheek. But it doesn't mean that we necessarily woodenly apply these things. I mean, for example, two objections that might be offered and I I think need um, comment. In the movie American Sniper about Chris Kyle, the most decorated sniper in American military history, he talks about his upbringing when his father told him there are three kinds of people in the world. There are sheep, there are wolves, and there are sheepdogs. If your brother or your sister is being abused or bullied on the playground, you have my permission to become a fierce sheepdog to protect somebody else. But if it's just you that's being threatened, you're being kidded or whatever, you deal with that yourself and don't deal with that with violence. You can absorb that. So I don't think we're having a contradiction here to that kind of teaching we might give to a child trying to find his or her way in the world. But we recognize it's self-denial that is being asked of me by my Lord here. And then uh, you might also say that give to everyone who asks of you, if, you're, if this is live stream or whatever, somebody's gonna stop right now, get in the car and drive down to Second Presbyterian Church and catch us as we walk out saying, I hope you practice that sermon. I'd like you to give me $1,000. Could you give me $100? Could you give me the, and you think, I, what can I do? I have to do it. No, you don't. This is not Ella Enchanted. Do you know that modern fairy tale? A little bit Ella Enchanted where Ella's fairy uh, godmother gives her the gift of obedience so that she has to do anything that anybody ever tells her to do. They try to keep it a secret because obviously she could be abused horribly by that. But people find out, the wicked stepsisters, of course, find out and and they, they do her harm. We don't become Ella Enchanted. We are still responsible as stewards of that to which God has given us. We don't want to do somebody harm. The point is not that woodenly I would do harm to a person by giving them randomly uh, because they happen to ask. No, I still need to exercise wisdom as a steward 
and to know that there are times when helping hurts, as that book of that title is very helpful for us to see. So, no, you still need to think. It's not Ella Enchanted, but just do think about it and realize that what lies behind this injunction in, in verse 42 to give or to, um, to the one who begs from you or um, to bar- the one who wants to borrow from you that you lend, it's probably Deuteronomy chapter 15, again, the Old Testament that guides us here. If among you, one of your brothers should become poor in any of your towns within your land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother, but you shall open your hand and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. You shall give to him freely and your heart shall not be grudging when you give to him because for this, the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in all that you undertake. For there will never cease to be poor people in the land. Therefore, I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy, and to the poor in your land. Inconvenient? Yes. Challenging to myself? Yes. But dangerous to others, keeping me from helping others? No. Then, Lord God, help me turn the other cheek. Help me give the shirt off my back. Help me go the extra mile and help me open my hand to comply with what you command. Wow. Well, surely it's not going to get any worse, is it? I mean, it can't can't really get harder for us. Um, Love all the people. Verses 43 through 47. It's not just love all the time. It's love all the people. We, like the Pharisees and the scribes, want to reduce the power of a particular command to make it more doable. Help me be able to practice this in some way. Surely you didn't mean that we're to love our enemies. You meant love our neighbor and hate our enemies, right? No, not right. But now we move to a whole new level of challenge. It gets harder rather than getting um, easier. Again, I want to begin with two distinctions that are necessary for us to understand this passage well. A distinction between the negative and the positive statements uh, of this text. The negative is what these first verses have talked about. Don't retaliate. Don't resist the evil person. The positive is what comes now. I tell you positively to love. John Stott puts it this way in his commentary um, on... Uh, the Sermon on the Mount. The last two contrasts of the series, a series that began with verse 21 and and extends to verse 48, uh, they reveal a progression. The first is a negative command. Do not resist an evil person. The second is positive. Love your enemies and seek their good. The first is a call to passive non-retaliation. The second to active love. As Augustine put it, Many have learned how to offer the other cheek, but do not know how to love him by whom they were struck. For we are to go beyond forbearance to service, beyond the refusal to repay evil, to the resolve to overcome evil with good. Very challenging indeed. And then another distinction to keep in mind as we come to these verses 43 to 47, 
the distinction between a worldly and a godly standard. What is our standard of behavior going to be? Is it the behavior that we see around us in the world? What are most of my neighbors doing? Well, that's what then I should do. That must be right. Or are do we base our ethical system not on the standard of the world, but on the standard of our God? And to say, his character will be my guide in determining how I'm to act in a particular, um, in a particular situation. And it is godlike character that is to mark the Christ follower, not worldlike uh, behavior. So um, we see God showing common grace. That he, he is kind to all. Psalm 145 verse 9 says that the Lord is good. He has compassion on all that he has made. The Lord tells Jonah, Jonah, do you have a right to be angry about this plant that was shielding you um, from the hot sun as you watched over Nineveh? I do. I have a right to be angry even to the point of death, said Jonah. And the Lord God said, you didn't plant that vine. You didn't tend that vine. It sprang up overnight and perished overnight. But Nineveh is a city with over 120,000 people who don't know their right hand from their left hand and many cattle as well. Should I not be concerned for that great city? Of course he should. We want to restrict our love to make it more doable. I'll, I'll love people like me. I'll love, pe- I'll love people that like me. I'll, I'll, I'll love easy people, but I'm not loving a lot of those people. So what does Jesus say? Well, this is what he says. He gives four descriptions of the broader love that he commands. The first description says, not just neighbors, but enemies as well. What? You cannot be serious. Yes, I am serious. You shall love your neighbor and you shall love your enemies. You shall love evil people as well as good people because your God does. He causes his son to rise on the evil and on the good. In the next verse, God loves righteous people. He also loves unrighteous people. And he sends his reign to the righteous and to the unrighteous. It's his common grace, his common goodness to all of humanity despite our sin. And we're to have that common grace as well. And then it's also a grace that extends to tax collectors and to Gentiles. And Jesus isn't telling us to do anything that he didn't himself do. He was the friend of tax collectors and sinners. He was the man who helped the Syrophoenician woman, a Gentile woman who said, Lord, help me. And he said, it's not right to give the children's food to dogs. And she said, but Lord, even the um, dogs get the scraps that fall from the table. He said, I've not heard such faith in all of Israel. Your daughter is healed. He loves Gentiles. He loves tax collectors. How about do we? We're supposed to. You cannot be serious, especially if you're going to tell me it applies to other groups that are more common in our 21st century. You can tell I'm going to. Yeah, it means men and women. You may say, not, not men. You have no idea what I've been through because of men. No, I do not love men. I will not love men. Someone might say. Someone else might say, women, are you kidding me? Women have been my downfall. They've hurt me. I, no, I'm not going to love women too. And Jesus says, yes, you are, if you're going to be my follower. Young and old, black and white, Asian and Hispanic too. Christian, yes, love Christians, and non-Christians. 
rich and poor, Republicans and Democrats, gay and straight. Yes, you love them all, for they are all your neighbor. Jesus, you cannot be serious. Jesus says, I am. And I want to give you, and this is after the four descriptions, two concrete and practical ways to apply this love. Notice the two that Jesus gives. In the first instance, he says, pray. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. It's much more difficult to entertain hatred in your heart for someone if you're praying for their welfare, praying for their repentance, praying for their help. When all of a sudden you stop and you realize, you know, this person's been so hateful to me and to many other people. This person's just evil. I wonder what happened in his life, in her life that made them turn this way. Lord, have mercy on that person. Help them get healing. Help me be an instrument of your peace here. Pray. The second concrete and specific thing that we are told to do is greet. If you greet those who love you or you greet your brothers only, what, what, what reward do you expect for that? Don't even Gentiles do that? Everybody knows that. But no, you're to greet those that don't see eye to eye with you. Greet them by name. Don't go across the street to avoid them or don't go across just without saying a word and frowning at them. No, we're to greet them. You cannot be serious. Jesus is serious and I'm serious. And in the last verse of this chapter, he gives us all the hope that we need. Love all the time, love all the people. And in verse 48, love all the gospel. Love the whole gospel. So I do, I do, I love the whole gospel. Well, I wonder, we're Protestants and we have gotten so much from a legal analogy in scripture, a legal illustration. We're familiar with this, aren't you? That God is the judge, yep, that part checks off. And we are the criminal before the bar, that part checks off. And we happen to know that we're guilty. God knows we're guilty too. And then there's somebody else in that courtroom and that is the devil who is the accuser of the brethren, the district attorney who is bringing the heat against us. And he's got an easy case because we are guilty, but thanks be to God, there is another person in the courtroom and that is our Lord Jesus Christ who is our advocate, our defense attorney. And he doesn't just offer us arguments. He doesn't just plead for mercy. He actually takes the penalty on himself and he dies in our place, suffers in our place that the wrath of a holy and just God might be propitiated. A deep theological word that means his wrath is turned away because full satisfaction is given. And Jesus gave full satisfaction and said when he gave up the ghost, it is finished. So, we are now justified by faith alone, through, I mean, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to Scripture alone, to the glory of God alone. And that is our Protestant heritage, and all of that is correct. But don't you know that the Bible also has a medical analogy to describe our salvation? And it is that one that is in view here in verse 48. You are to be perfect even as your heavenly Father is perfect. You cannot be serious. I cannot be perfect. That verse contains within it the seeds of our understanding, the seeds of our hope, that there's a medical analogy here. We don't just have a verdict through the gospel. We've got a transplant through the gospel. And the divine cardiothoracic surgeon has taken out a heart of stone and put within us a heart of flesh, which is the new covenant promise in Ezekiel 36. 
And then the divine obstetrician has delivered us into this world. We are born again. We are not just legally adopted on paper by God our Father. We are also born again of his nature. We should bear the family likeness of our Father. Therefore, you are to be perfect because your Father in heaven is perfect. You will, and you think, well, I'm never going to be perfect. That's true. In this life, we are not led to believe that we will be perfect. We say with Paul, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I do what I don't want to do. I don't want to do what I do. (sighs) But this is still our aspiration. We want to be Christ-like. We want to be godly. And in any given case, I am called upon to pray, Lord, help me turn the other cheek. Lord, help me to do the right thing here that will honor and please you. And thanks be to God, we have that possibility because we have been born again. I'm probably messing it up. Let me give you uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones' explanation of how can you say seriously that we can do all of this? You've been born again. You have been born spiritually, and you're a child of God. Did you notice the way our Lord puts it? I say unto you, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. Why? That you may be like God? No. That you may be the children, not even of God. No, that you may be the children of your Father who is in heaven. God has become Father to the Christian. Our Lord does not say, be ye therefore perfect, even as God in heaven is perfect. No, thank God. Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father who is in heaven is perfect. Be what your Father is. And George told us last Sunday morning, great thing from Exodus 20, you know, at the beginning of the Ten Commandments, and he went through the Ten Commandments so helpfully. But the most helpful thing, I think, is what he was getting at is that there's grace in the law of God, grace in the Ten Commandments, that I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of bondage. And therefore I say to you, you shall have no other gods before me. It's grace. I'm already your father. Now I want you to live like the family lives, not live this way and maybe you'll become part of one of my children. No, we don't believe in justification by love. We believe in justification by faith, but we also believe in a sanctification, a process that is for a lifetime of becoming more and more like the Lord who saved us. Justification is the work of a moment. We move from guilty to not guilty because our faith is counted to us as righteousness. But sanctification is the work of a lifetime. And so we recognize that that's the long haul, three steps forward, two steps backward. In fact, as Dan Burns told us last Sunday evening, the Christian life is one of perpetual repentance. That we're constantly, to use his great analogy, we're going on a train telling our wife, I know how to get there. I know we're in Athens, Greece, but I've been here before. I know how to get there. And you go on this train, and then you realize as your stop goes by, uh, you got on the wrong train. So what do you have to do? You have to stop. You have to get off that train. You got to cross over the tracks. You got to get on a train going the opposite way until you can come back. You have to repent. And so we do that our whole lives. Every week, we're confessing our sins here. But we don't despair. We don't give up hope. Because God has grace even in this law, this law of the the Sermon on the Mount as well. Martin Lloyd-Jones again. The sermon, when you first read it, discourages you and casts you down. But then it reminds you that you're a child of your Father in heaven, that you're not just left to yourself, but that Christ has come to dwell in you and to take up his abode in you. You are but a branch of the vine. Power and life and sustenance are there. You're simply to bear the fruit 
Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you abide in me, you bear much fruit and prove to be my disciples. If you don't abide in me, you can do nothing. So we've been given a heart transplant, a new nature, and now we cling to Christ as a branch clings to that vine. All right, it's time to conclude, to figure out how are we going to wrap this thing up. We've looked at, uh, well, there are, there are different ways God could have shown who are his disciples and who are not. He could have used the weather. In fact, he did, right? We came through that in Exodus chapter 9. And we read there that uh, God used the weather. There was no hailstone in the land of Goshen, but in the land of Egypt, hail came down and destroyed the crops. God could do that still. But Jesus said, that's not the way God's working. God causes his sun to shine on the just and the unjust. Rain falls on the good and the evil not the weather. God could cause health and wealth to be the badge for his people. He did that before. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the patriarchs, they all seem to get that way. In fact, we read about Isaac in uh, Genesis chapter 26, that when he was sojourning in the land of the Philistines for a period of time, a famine in the land, that he prospered incredibly. He sowed in the land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold. The Lord blessed him and the man became rich and gained more and more until he became very wealthy. He had possessions of flocks and herds and many servants so that the Philistines envied him. And when Abimelech went to him from Gerar with his advisor and the commander of his army, Isaac said to them, why have you come to me? And they said, we see plainly that the Lord has been with you. So we said, let there be a sworn pact between us. It's obvious God's with you. Look at how he's prospered you with health and wealth. But then Job speaks against that. The man born blind speaks against that. And Jesus says, no, I didn't call you to wealth and to riches as the distinguishing factor. Well, then Lord, how will you make a distinction between your people and the people of the world? Francis Schaeffer, another great writer of the 20th century, in an appendix to the church before the watching world said this. Through the centuries, people have displayed many different symbols to show that they are Christians. They've worn marks in the lapels of their coats. They've hung chains about their necks. They even had special haircuts. We might add they've got bumper stickers or they've got little magnetized fish they put on their bumpers or you know, all kinds of different things. Of course, there's nothing wrong with any of this if one feels it is his calling, but there's a much better sign, a mark that has not been thought up just as a matter of expediency for use on some special occasion or in some specific era. It is a universal mark that is to last through all the ages of the church until Jesus comes back. What is this mark? Love is the mark Christ gave Christians to wear before the world. Only with this mark may the world know that Christians are indeed Christians and that Jesus was sent by the Father. It still sounds impossible. I'm going to actually give you some uh, ammunition for that view that it is impossible. The Apostle Paul talks about love in 1 Corinthians 13, very famous passage. And I'm going to change the wording slightly to help you see it does sound impossible. David Bowen is patient and kind. David Bowen does not envy or boast. He's not arrogant or rude. He does not insist on his own way. He is not irritable or resentful. He does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. David Bowen bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. You're kind not to laugh. It's a very challenging way to read 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7. Oh, it's not true. Lord, have mercy. Help me. I want to be different. 
I would give up except for this reading of the same verses. Jesus is patient and kind. Jesus does not envy or boast. He is not arrogant or rude. He does not insist on his own way. He's not irritable or resentful. He does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Jesus bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Oh, Jesus, help us. Help us follow your example. Help us obey your teaching. Otherwise, we're without hope. Well, that brings us to application. What about those external factors that I mentioned at the beginning of the sermon? Well, I think that the application of all that we've read about love here is that we need to wear masks when we're out in public with other people, and we need to maintain six feet of distance between us, not for us, but for love of our neighbor. And with the racial injustice and unrest that's going on, we need to use our ears, and we need to listen more. We need to have conversations with people other than us of a different race so that we might learn something. Read a book by an author of a different race and try to understand And then this contentious political season, just make a commitment with your lips. I will not speak something inaccurate about another person's view or this disrespectful manner, but I will treat this neighbor with respect, and I will make sure that I've understood their view correctly before I critique it. Not like a Hamilton cabinet debate with all of the middle school mic dropping and name calling and no. With the uh, the pastoral factors, Well, I, again, commit myself to follow this Jesus, or will I not? Choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, to say you're a member of Christ's church. Which Christ? And will I love my brothers and sisters at this time, with we differ on different aspects of the church's life, will I still show that kind of love? And then with the personal factors, I suspect many of you are like me. We need to show that we care as much as, but we're going to have to do that by showing that we care more than about public righteousness than about private piety, that we might manifest the love that Jesus calls us to show to all people. Here it is in one sentence, if you want to wake up now and get the whole thing. The supernatural love that Christ commands requires the supernatural power that Christ supplies. Let's ask him for it. Righteous, holy, gracious, merciful, just Father in heaven, please forgive us for not loving in the way that your Son, our Savior and Lord, taught us to love. Thank you for sending him to be the propitiation for our sins and for giving us hope. You didn't leave us comfortless, nor did he, but you sent us the Holy Spirit, and therefore we pray, fill us afresh that we may bear fruit to your glory. Keep us from despair, for though the righteous man falls seven times, he rises again. Give us our hope in Jesus, whose name we now lift high and in whose name we pray. Amen.